Hello, and welcome to the 801. We took a few months off to rest and recharge, but we're back with the BL that put BL Garden in therapy. In the sea of BL, because we're truly drowning in content, why do we continue to enjoy BL that makes us sad or question our sanity? What's so appealing about grief and tragedy porn? Why are uke with tragic backstories so damn hot? If you relate to any of these things, you're in good company today. We at BL Garden respect the distinction between fiction and reality and believe that everyone has the right to engage with whatever kind of BL content they wish. You also have the responsibility that comes with actively engaging in this content. The old don't like, don't read. Or if you've clicked through all of those warnings on AO3, we presume you really did want to read that hurt comfort fic that's going to fuck you up for six months. But to be transparent for anyone listening, this episode will probably contain a laundry list of trigger warnings, including mentions of sexual assault, childhood sexual assault, self-harm, and suicide. So please take care of yourself. And if you or someone you know is considering suicide or experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call or text the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. First, let's start off with some of our favorites in this more hurt than comfort arena and why it stuck with you or why you keep coming back to it. Okay, so I'm Professor Hotmas and my more hurt than comfort area would probably be Okane Ganai or No Money. It was a guilty something other than pleasure, but I couldn't put it down for quite a while. There's a tragic backstory for every character. Abuse, gay for you, literally buying another human being. I just needed to know where the story was going. I was hoping the kid ended up with the driver guy because at least he was sort of kind of nice to him because the gangster dude was just a jerk. And I really just wanted to tell the kid how you knew, what was the whole point of all this? It was just dragged out for just suffering for no reason. So I do love tragedy or grief porn. So I have quite a few favorites, but I think my top two for BL specifically are Maiden Rose and A Little Life. Maiden Rose, it's a manga by Fusunosuke Inaria, if you're not familiar with it. And it's really interesting because instead of your typical BL plot being kind of that, oh, the Uke's unwilling, but he's eventually won over, even if this was very problematic to begin with, The main pair really start off their relationship in this story much more consensually, and then it becomes non-consensual later. So it's really interesting to see the de-evolution or maybe the unraveling of a relationship rather than something starting and kind of getting better. A Little Life is actually an American novel by Hanya Yanagihara, who I'm personally convinced is a Fujoshi, just having read all of her work, like, there's Fujo vibes. So A Little Life is a solid brick of a book. It's like 700 pages, and it's probably the toughest book I've ever read emotionally. Like Maiden Rose, it's a story where things don't get better. So like, this is your warning for now. So I read A Little Life because I heard an interview with the author about it on NPR, where she talked about how the book was really a look at what happens if someone experiences a trauma and never recovers. And that piqued my interest. And the book really stuck with me because very true to that interview, it's a story about someone with deep, repeated trauma that fundamentally does not want to get help and does not want to get better. And I think that's incredibly fascinating, even if it's super heartbreaking too. So it's a little difficult to answer this question because I consume a lot of media. I read 
a lot. That's kind of one of the things I do in a lot of my downtime. So I, it was really hard for me to just like give you a list of, of anything specific because I just, there's so much that I read and now I'm like completely blanking on, on everything. But I could tell you for sure that I would say a lot of either books or, you know, films, you know, and, and music too, actually, now that I think about it tend, at least for me, to be a lot darker as ones I like. I think if I had to pick something that has stuck with me for a long time, I would actually say music. There's the album of Blue October's History for Sale, I think really has stuck with me for various reasons because of how the songs in that album actually are almost very similar to what I would be reading anyway. It's very dark, but and deals a lot of a different subject matter mainly like abuse, uh, child abuse, things like that. So I don't know, gosh, you know, I think I just read too much and and listen to too much to give you a specific list right now. (laughs) That's what it is. That's always a good problem to have though, is reading too much. Yeah, for sure. So when I was doing research for this podcast episode and just trying to figure out too, like, okay, why, why do we love, you know, sad books. There's actually an article by Medium entitled Why Reading Sad Books is a Good Thing. And the author, Melissa Gowdy, recounts her first experience with tragedy in literature as the death of Charlotte in Charlotte's Web. So apologies to everybody who just had to relive a childhood trauma here, (laughs) me mentioning Charlotte. But not to get too Freudian on all of us, were there any books or media in your childhood that might have impacted your affinity for sad stories or what was your first exposure to character death? I grew up in New York around communities that had relatives that died in the Holocaust, and my teachers covered that period of time in World War II extensively. I had the honor and privilege of attending a lecture given by Eli Wiesel. I had a Molly American Girl doll. I read Number of the Stars, and I read The Diary of Anne Frank and fully in third grade. My dad was super proud of me reading a little above my reading level and that I completed a really hard book conquering a difficult topic. And he was so proud. He took me to the Anne Frank, uh, the Diary of Anne Frank play in New York City. And the ending of the play has German soldiers breaking into the attic and yelling in German. And I did not take it well. My father had to physically remove me from the theater. I was hysterical. But I've always known that these stories are important to be told the real stories of real terrible things that have happened to real people, because we should never forget that actual people have suffered due to hate, as well as these fictional retellings that act as warnings for us. I also somewhat understand the psychology of reading and watching tragic things. We have a release when they make us cry and so on. I grew up Christian, so I will say that technically my first exposure to character death was the Bible and in church. But in secular media, I remember being like ridiculously traumatized, kind of like you were a professor, like having to be taken out of the theater by the maternal deaths in Bambi and The Land Before Time. And I was watching those like on VHS in my home. And I think most kids also were traumatized by the moms dying. Um, it's it's like a just a primal reaction as a kid to be like, oh, no, I don't want this to happen. But I think the one that really sticks out for me beyond like, okay, those were like predictable was the fourth Harry Potter book, Goblet of Fire, where, spoiler alert, Cedric Diggory dies. So as a 10-year-old, when I was reading it, that was kind of the first time that I'd had a book really pull that dark plot twist, even though, you know, there'd been all this foreshadowing in the book, and it's not like the first three books were exactly sunshine and rainbows, old moldy Boldy's a good guy. You know, 
I knew that there was there was evil and there was a, there was a dark force in Harry Potter. We just hadn't been exposed to it at quite this level. But for all of the darkness in Goblet of Fire, it was always my favorite book of the series. And I think I was drawn to it because maybe it was something that signaled like, oh, this isn't a book series for for like just for kids anymore. It's a young adult book. And I was kind of at that age where I was aspiring to, you know, read tween or or teenager, like more young adult type books. So, okay, it's gonna be, it's gonna probably, probably make me cry actually right now. But so I have a very vivid memory in my brain. And I was watching Land Before Time because that's that movie that just kills a lot of, you know, 90s kids, early millennials, I guess would be <laughs> that good, that time when it came out. So I just remember bawling my eyes out with that movie. And I was running downstairs to my mom from my, we were visiting my aunt, I think. And I had to been like four, maybe five at most. And that's really my first memory of grasping that, that about death. And it's kind of hard right now because like next week's like the, the memorial for my mom's death. So it's like, whoa. so I'm like super misty eyed right now, but I would say in general, death and media has always been for me, like an other, it's really the, <laughs> the best way for me to phrase it. Like, I think maybe for me, especially growing up, I compartmentalized a lot of it because it's fiction and it was always something for me that was separate. Like I would recognize that like characters die, but it didn't really bother me or really affected me in general. I think the only times where that I can recall that it did was really just later in life. And that's probably because as an adult, I've had a lot more life experiences So I have more ways to say, identify with a lot of, you know, situations and it, it will like bring up a lot of memories or personal traumas. So I don't know. It's just, that's how I am. I didn't really, it's hard for me other than that film. That was really my first memory that I can think of that I I dealt with death at that age for sure. And I just want to say, I'm really sorry for having brought up the land before time. I did not even realize. And so I apologize for anything that might've been triggering for you, Chibi? Oh, no, no, it's totally fine. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where like, I'll get misty eyed just because it's it's my my go-to reaction, but but it's okay. No, it's, you're good. Yeah. And if this is again, triggering for anybody listening to this, you're completely valid for stepping away at any point. We recognize that these are challenging topics and we're not trying to make light of them with our enjoyment. So in BL, we know that stories with so-called problematic content like gay for you and non-con romances aren't nearly as common as people think. And perhaps people are just remembering them more because it was shocking while also glossing over or forgetting all of the times that the stories maybe did have gay characters or were actually consensual. So interestingly, one of the theories out there about why we love sad stories so much is simply because they're more memorable. Laurie Udick, in her piece In Defense of Depressing Books for the Huffington Post, goes further and defines good books as books that don't sugarcoat existence, but rather draw you into the realities of life. Books that aren't afraid to show you the real suffering and how characters respond to it. Books that deal with death and radical sacrifice. So what are your thoughts on these two theories? Do you really love reading sad books because those are the storylines that stick with you, Or is it simply because they're good books? As I mentioned before, I think sad stories teach us a lesson, but I often read sad stories when I personally need a release. 
I need something to push me over the edge to tears so I can get some endorphins going on. My daily life is chronic, low-level stress, high cortisol. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors are theorized to have lived lives where they had adrenaline-filled events, think being attacked by wolves or hunting boars, between rest periods, where modern humans are constantly seething at low levels because of rush hour commutes, normal work drama, and maybe dealing with aunties named Karen. We need something extreme, sad, tragic stories or adrenaline pumping roller coasters to get a rush of emotion so we can crash after. So I personally hesitate to label any one book good or bad based off of the type of story. I think we as Fujoshi are even more aware of how romance, especially smut, has always gotten a bad rap as being lowbrow literature, often because it's made for or is popular with women, you know, misogyny and all that jazz. But as I mentioned in our last episode, I've grown a little tired of the more fluffy childhood best friends to lover stories. I do really love to read them, but I think I was just reading too many of them. And there isn't always so much variety, so it felt a little stale. Whereas things like Rivals to Lovers, which isn't usually my thing, break up the monotony. Dead Dove Do Not Eat stories are kind of the same way. If I read them all the time, I would probably be even more desensitized than I am now. And I may not get the same kind of gut punch when I read a good one, but sprinkled here and there as maybe like a palate cleanser, especially if they are really well-written and aren't just cheap attempts at trauma porn, then yeah, like I really love a good epic tragedy. My favorite sad stories like A Little Life and Banana Fish, I do really think they're good books. And those are longer, more complex narratives that not only compound on the tragedy, but have a more complete picture to say than like, a one-shot like A Home Far Away, which is a recent one coming out from Kuma. And it did a really wonderful job as kind of a what I would say like a sketch of a story, but it maybe wasn't the full picture it could have been. And I'd even say like objectively right now, Maiden Rose is still so all over the place between the two different manga serializations and all of the doujinshi that I can't even recommend it as an easy, let alone good read, unless you're just really dedicated to the story. So I think a book isn't automatically good or bad based off of how much tragedy it has, you know, in general. Now everyone here knows that the way to my heart is with a blonde uke with a tragic backstory. And I'll read just about anything if it has that premise. Oh, keep telling you read a certain book, but I know, I know. And it's the one that takes place in my home state, right? It does. And you've got a blonde so I'm just gonna, and I think, yeah, just go. Okay, I'll go I'll get it for home. for my flight when I have my flight to Japan because I'll have a lot to read. Oh yes, that's the best time. <laughs> so I definitely love darker books for sure, which I've probably mentioned a couple times when I've been on the podcast. But I really can't say that all the stuff I've read is a uh, good. Because sometimes it's just not, you know, it can just be trauma porn for the sake of trauma porn. And that's just, you know, it's just how it is. Sometimes you start something and you realize, well, this isn't going where I thought it was, but I'm going to keep reading anyway because it's my jam. But I think in general, I appreciate those stories, even if they actually have like a good story, or even if it is just say trauma porn, I appreciate them because it really, to me, it shows that humans are flawed rather than me taking a book that are just, you know, happy because they're all happy. Because for me personally, those kind of stories don't feel real. And I think a lot of that might have to do with just my experiences in life. 
and how I view people in general. But a lot of the books that I read deal with like, it's very real, like messed up things, I guess, when you put it out there. And what I personally think about it, I know like a a lot of my friends and even my wife actually will kind of like make fun of me for the stuff I read, not in a bad way, but just like teasing because I'm the person in, in this, you know, in that group that's like, yeah, bring it on. If it's terrible and dark, yeah, I'll read it. It's great. But like I said, I think, I think a lot of the reason that I am attracted to that is just because of how I grew up because a story where everyone is happy is just not it's just not realistic in, in my head. And a lot of the things that I read involve things like sex trafficking and, and abuse. And it's, and again, it goes back to that, that sort of that other that I mentioned, it's something, it's something that I know humans do and it is real and it is a problem, but like in fiction, it's not something that's actually happening to me or to real people at that time. And so I don't really have that same response that I guess your average person might, if they're not really, if they're squeamish about something like that is how I feel about it. I just, I just don't, I don't have that same response. And I think it's just because I am able to compartmentalize a lot of this in certain ways. Yeah. That distinction between fiction and reality is very important when interacting with this kind of media. So beyond being entertaining or a really good read, sad books can be good for you if you're interested in reading them, of course. In another Medium article titled, Why Do We Read Depressing Books and Enjoy Them? Kalina Murasan states that when readers were surveyed about book preferences, one of the most common answers was that readers suppress their negative emotions and depressing books can help them access those feelings. Melissa Gowdy suggests that sad books can also remind us that we're not alone, help us to see problems and solutions before we experience them, create empathy and compassion as we learn about the plight of others, and even to deal with the concept of evil. How has reading sad books made you reevaluate yourself and the world? I think some sad stories have helped me reflect on sad things that happened to me personally and also increased my overall empathy. I read a study once where they had some kids read stories about fictional groups experiencing discrimination, such as vampires, werewolves, witches. So these weren't real minority groups, but like a fictional disenfranchised groups. And they had other kids read neutral stories. And the kids reading the discrimination stories exhibited greater care and concern for those fictional groups and greater empathy in general. They actually started to identify with the characters in the stories experiencing discrimination. They could actually relate to them better just reading these stories. And I think you could argue you could do this with actual real groups exhibiting discrimination. If you talk about them, have stories about them, children reading this would feel more empathy and understanding. For a more personal example of a story that made me question things and developed my empathy a little, but also broke me a bit, is The Giver. It made me question social structures and how we value people in society. There's a scene with a baby that has probably messed me up for life and I'll never recover. And the ending was originally super unclear as you were supposed to find the ending in yourself. Lois Lowry, the author, actually told me this when she was visiting my school in third or fourth grade. And I asked her to please just tell me what the ending meant and what happened to the two characters at the end. And she wouldn't do it. Of course, after years of living with this, I am told that later sequels of The Giver let you know what happened, which means she knew the whole time and I'm just not over it. 
Have you read the sequels? I can't do it. I had one sitting on my shelf for like years. I just couldn't. I don't even know. know it had sequels. I should know, but I, I totally didn't even know that. And I don't, why would you want a sequel to The Giver? It was fine. I guess it actually looks at other societies in the same oh. world, if that makes sense, mm. to contrast them. World building. I see. It's kind of like The Handmaid's Tale, where Margaret Atwood came out with like, not quite a sequel, but like kind of a sister like story. And it's like, mm-hmm. but but The Handmaid's Tale is kind of a complete picture already so yeah talk about books that'll fuck you up for different reasons (laughs) you know yeah we're not gonna get into the the political side of things there but oof, that is still one that i'm like man the alarm bells are ringing for me at age 15 like i think they're still ringing unfortunately so everyone knows as i've multiple times said on this podcast i love a good tragic backstory said it already a couple times today but i personally never really paid much thought until i read a little life so that is a book that definitely wrestles with the concept of evil and it completely fucked me up. So I made one of my friends in the group read it just so I could have someone to vent to. And I'm, you know, really sorry that I like kind of forced you to read this book because I know it was tough to read. I actually reached out to an old college friend who's now a therapist after I finished it to, to kind of ask me like, Hey, have you ever experienced literature that was like so tough and traumatic to read that you like questioned everything and had to take a step, step back. And she said, yeah, that's normal. You might need some time to process things, but I just had not had a book where I'd had such a visceral reaction. And it's not really like I stopped reading a little life, even partway through, like I could not put it down. And I've reread it twice, even though it is an incredibly traumatic book to reread. But it was in the immediate aftermath of reading it for the first time that I really had to question why I was so into characters who survived abuse. Specifically in this case, it was childhood sexual assault. The main character, Jude, was a victim so many times, like to the point that it's a little unbelievable. And it's one of the main critiques of the book is it's like, could this really have been somebody's life? And so whether or not that's actually possible... I just really had to examine myself because I was confronted with what I felt like were basically the effects of that childhood trauma on a person who absolutely did not want to get help and so desperately wanted to die. And that's gut-wrenching. And I, I kind of personally felt like an abuser in a way for having loved these tropes before because it was presented so realistically in a little life and and so viscerally as like, this is what somebody can go through. Whereas in like BL, it's just not realistic in the same way like the characters don't seem to exhibit the same kinds of reactions and i think the in like a similar vein the banana fish anime was particularly good about making you as the viewer feel like the sleaze because of the cinematography that the director hiroko utsumi took it's extra voyeuristic again it got a lot of critiques from from people who were saying like like why are we having such a lens focused on ash and his abuse in a way that felt like it was really objectifying him But the banana fish anime is similar to the manga um, in that it really serves as a lens for people to see what people go through with sexual harassment and assault. So I'm not really sure if a little life has a lesson, if any, other than it was an exercise in like the author kind of said about what happens if someone doesn't get better and in making a story where there is absolutely no good ending. So if anything, I became more empathetic towards victims And at the time that I had read A Little Life, I personally didn't have the best views on these issues. This was right about the start of Me Too. And I did a lot of personal growing and listening and learning 
to become more aware of like what people go through and to educate myself. So during COVID, which wasn't that long ago, and I think we're still feeling a little bit of the effects of it for sure. I actually read a book called Wrath by Ellis James, which is the one that I'm super recommending to you because it does take place in your home state and has that blonde. And uh, if you're willing to handle 700 pages, it's totally worth it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. But it was a book that I personally could not put down. I literally was just here as my Kindle and I'm just laying on the couch for hours just reading this book. But I did actually have to take a couple of breaks because I distinctly recall it making me cry. And not a lot of media does that to me. I mean, there are very specific situations where it does definitely related to, you know, trauma growing up, that sort of thing, not necessarily triggering. It's just, that's just what it, it does. I'm like, oh yes, I remember a thing. But in the book, you know, you have this character who on the outside seems like this perfect person, but at the, you know, spoiler alert, at the beginning of the book, you know, he's basically about to jump off a bridge because he's so unhappy and he's miserable. And, you know, you don't even, it doesn't, and, and you read it and it doesn't really occur to you at the time until you keep reading the book. You're like, oh, that's actually what was happening there. And that's, you know, a good way to get that intro of like, here's this character and this is what it's going to be like. But it, it was a great book, made me cry and you'll love it, I promise, in some way or shape or form. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's also fan fiction that, you know, you can have a pairing I like and, and, and everything just because, you know, you like a pairing. But sometimes there's one I remember, and it was like a Levi Aaron one, but they were focusing on on, on Levi at the time, and it was definitely out of character. <laughs> and I don't generally read out of character things, but this one I did. And I think it was something for the author to, probably cathartic for the author, but the way they were handling it is they were putting into words what it was like to be super depressed because, you know, at one point in my life, I was, you know, I was medically depressed. And that was just a thing. And I didn't get, you know, I fixed my serotonin levels when I was finally in college, which is great. And I'm good right now. But, you know, it was the first time where I can remember that the author was able to put into words exactly what my, my brain was thinking. And that was really great, but also weird. (laughs) And so it's, I don't know, you know, it's, I would say overall, it's just, it's a cathartic thing for me. Definitely. I think they kind of have a good idea. We were mentioning the articles that for me, the few things that do really get me a reaction is probably because it's cathartic. It's, you know, my way of being able to let out, you know, when I cry, letting out emotions that I didn't even think I was holding back. You don't, you know, I don't think about it. So that's, that's kind of, it's definitely cathartic for me, I think. Yeah. Sometimes we really just need that release and we, you know, feel like this is, this is the best way to get it. But sometimes we're really just not in the mood to read a sad book because it's going to make us really fucking sad. And there's actually a growing number of people who say that they won't go see movies in theaters or watch sad TV shows because, quote, why should I pay someone to make me feel sad? Were there any times when reading your favorite Uber depressors that you had to put the book down or had to say, I can't read that right now? Should people even be reading these types of stories if they do have that power to affect our emotions so heavily? I've discussed this before, but for the longest time, I could not read 10 Count. Couldn't get past the first couple of panels. 
And then I had to carefully tell myself it was fiction, just like any other BL. There were no actual patients or providers involved. There's no like moral conflict because it's fiction. And then I finally was able to enjoy it for what it was mostly after that. But because I myself have OCD, there were a couple scenes I had to put the book down because it hit a little too close to home. And I found myself doing behaviors that I shouldn't because they're like OCD behaviors, like over washing of hands or pulling hair that I don't, something about the book and the character doing the repetitive actions was causing me to do it. And I had to be responsible and be like, okay, I got to put this down for a bit, re-examine my thoughts and go back. Yeah, I think what's really important is that, like, if you're listening, you're hearing us say, we love this media, we like to engage with it, but it is challenging at times, and we have had to put it down. So like I mentioned, I had to finish, when I finished A Little Life, like, I really had to take a step back from a lot of media, just in general. I was like, I need to not watch anything. I personally would not recommend that book to anyone I didn't think could handle it or couldn't see what the author was trying to do with it. It's just simply too heavy for a lot of people. And because of the topics of self-harm and suicide, I would be careful who I recommend it to. So I regret that I was maybe not so careful in trying to get my friend to read it because I wasn't necessarily thinking about it like, oh, what would this, how would this affect you? So I apologize. That's something I want to do better when I'm recommending media to be more cognizant of what people are individually going through. Because as we all become more conscious about mental health, I think it's you know, we have to appropriately tag or warn people that is healthy, that's fair to people. But I also strongly believe that this kind of content has a right to exist and we have a right to consume the media that we want. So for me, like even if the subject matter was something that directly affected me, like I don't think I'm going to stop reading just because I'm that stubborn and I want to know what happens. And I, honestly, I do want stories that are going to make me cry if something can make me cry, that's a good thing. And that's just, and that's for me because every person is different. And I think when you think about it, it's just brains are really complicated <laughs> and I am not a therapist or anything, but I'm sure that there's, there's reasons behind a lot of the things that I do and how I handle it, but it works for me personally. But like, I'll think of, when I think about it and I think about a lot of times that I do want them to make me feel something some sort of emotion, be it crying or just, you know, happy or just sad, or even, you know, in some cases like, oh, that's kind of disturbing, but whatever. It's because I do want me, I, I want that media to make me feel that. And I, I don't know if it's because of, you know, how I grew up and my childhood and my experiences, because growing up, especially, it was just, it was not something that I allowed myself to really do as being able to have a lot of those emotions because of various, you know, various reasons that I don't want to go into because it's traumatizing for some people and that's fair. But, you know, in generally, especially when I was clinically depressed and, and everything, you know, at that point, I was just numb to a lot of things because again, it was like a defense mechanism for me and I just had to be. So being able to have something make me cry and to feel things, be it then or even now, is kind of just, again, it's an outlet. It is cathartic. And fortunately, my life is way much, you know, it's much better than it was. And my brain is much better than it was, which is great. But now I'm a lot of, you know, I'm still able to consume that media. I still want it to make me feel something, but I'm able to handle it probably a little bit better than I was when I was younger. 
But at the same time, you know, sometimes, you know, even if it is something that's cathartic or, you know, whatever, sometimes you read these books because they're just hot. It is what it is, you know, because I'll read a lot of books that have like BDSM and which, you know, it's an adjacent topic and there's a lot of emotional release involved in giving up control, but that could be a totally different episode and different topic at the time. But, you know, that's something to think about is sometimes you just enjoy the book for whatever reason and you can't explain it and that's okay. Well, if you want to hear us talk about BDSM, make sure to let us know. That sounds like an episode we would love to do, especially because there's been so much more in the Japanese manga side of things. Like there's the whole Dom Sub universe, which is like, I don't know, things are popping off over there. It's an interesting place to be and, you know, we'll consider it. So let us know if you're interested. But to end on a happier note, which I guess BDSM can be happy too, not to, not to say that it's not. As long as it's safe and consensual, yes, it can be. Yes, yes, always, always (laughs) uh, have to have that disclaimer. Yeah. So to end on a happier note, when you're not reading soul crushing grief porn that makes you question humanity, what do you like to read? Any recent escapes? My recent guilty pleasure is probably Buddy Daddies. The series in general is super wholesome and sweet. You got the two assassins that end up with a cute yet annoying child. Very shippy. I don't know if they'll and giving me actual like couple at the point, but you know, I'll take what I can get. Yeah. That's been one of the surprises of this season. I think everybody seeing the title was like this, what is this? And then it turned out to be actually a pretty good anime. So just don't it, Google buddy daddy. <laughs> it's, it's on my to watch list right now. Yeah. So my usual palate cleanser is true crime, which I know is highly problematic in and of itself. Look, it is I totally am of- with you hundred percent there. Yeah, it's hard to explain <laughs> why, like, my partner just doesn't get it where it's like, I need to relax. And I'm like, yes, a show about murder. So it's it's just like a millennial woman thing, I guess. But I mean, and true crime is kind of a type of grief porn too. So I'll allow it. I also really like period pieces. I've been loving Brie Antoinette on PPS. In BL, I personally try to balance the angst with fluffy friends to lovers, or I'll read dojins or fanfic for my OTP. So I recently got my print copies of Golden Sparkle and I Didn't Mean to Fall in Love by Mita Susumaru. So I'm falling back in love with her work. So excited we finally got her work printed in English. And I also read The Dragon's Betrothed by Megaru Hinohara, and I can't wait to see where it's going. But I really hope volume two has some actual smut because volume one was like the biggest teaser of everything the whole time. It's like, I know it's story build up, but like, come on, just fuck already. <laughs> like, <sighs> Okay. So honestly, I'm struggling to think of like things that I'll I'll read or watch that that aren't depressing in some way. Because again, I also do the whole true crime thing, and honestly, it's almost it's almost just like a meme at my house where, you know, I'll put it on because I will fall asleep to it because whoever the narrator is is just really relaxing. (laughs) Yes. And they're just, and people will come in and be like, "Why are you falling asleep to horrific crimes?" Like I don't know. It's like a legit thing. Like my it mom is. has has dozed off in the car listening to true crime podcasts. We have to it be like, totally let me drive. Is. I I don't understand it, but yes, I too can fall asleep. To, <laughs> it's to, like to the murder. best way to, for like, me to relax. I'm like, nope, time to take a nap. Let's put on true crimes. Yes. <laughs> but like, gosh. Oh, even like when I read fan fiction, I'm just like, I will look for the tag specifically. It's like, is it really angsty? You know, where's my rape or non-con? Yeah, okay, I'll probably... Just, you know, I'll, that's, I will almost always like search those out first and then I'll, you know, occasionally go into like the, the AUs. Cause I'm kind of a, I'm a, I love like rockstar AUs. 
because I just do. And they're usually pretty happy with occasional like some angst. But so that's kind of my go to. Honestly, probably the most like wholesome fan fiction that I read is like the fan fiction that my wife writes because I help edit. And she is very much into the fluff and we are very opposite on what we like to consume, which is great. And I also tend to when I just need to kind of like let my brain just chill, I guess is the best way to phrase it is I like to watch people play video games. And that's always been my go to. So I don't know, I just I'm able to just turn everything off and I'm able to relax and it makes me happy. But I also get a chance to like spend time with people that I like. And that's kind of nice. And so you know, I'll watch fluffy stuff that with, you know, with people that like it, because again, my wife is really into the fluffier things and happy endings and such. But I'll I'll sit down and I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it because at the same time, it makes them happy. And when they're happy, it kind of like comes to me and it makes me happy. So that's really my way of dealing as, a, as the alternative to my usual. But I generally don't really seek out like your fluffy happiness stories on their own or on my own rather in general. So that's what I do. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the 801. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and consider leaving us a review. This really helps boost our ratings. Stay up to date on all things BL Garden, including what cons will be at this summer by following us on social media at BL Garden DFW on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Bye.